0: Forensic Investigations and Cybersecurity and Digital Forensics. New online sessions start every eight weeks. No application fee or GRE required. Visit stevenson.edu slash online.
1: Yeah, it's called Conversations with Jeff, not Screaming Matches.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah I, 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 You and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other.
3: I think it's going to really shock a lot of people thrill a lot of people a lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching
4: it's like you know what what are you doing you're spending all your time trying to destroy another christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for jesus right
1: thank you for the job you're doing thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues they are vital
3: to the church I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's, it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord.
1: People won't change unless they hear the truth, though, and so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth, and then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth uh, no matter what the consequences are.
2: guys welcome to today's episode of conversations with jeff thank you guys so much for tuning for tuning in i just want to remind you guys of a couple things we are beginning to live stream or uh actually post all of our videos for conversations with jeff specifically on gatekeepersonline.com so if you want to check out any of our shows go over there gatekeepersonline.com we've got a great lineup of shows including this one we got the new patriot squad with uh, pastor ken peters we got the shining light podcast with sam jones and patrick wyatt bunch of great content for you guys and then just a reminder scheduling note as well coming up may 13th through 16th i'm going to be speaking at the faith and freedoms conference in dallas texas uh with that's hosted by matt couch and a bunch of other great um american conservatives and pastors and leaders and things like that so definitely definitely check that out i've got the uh, link on my twitter page so you can go find that and uh, definitely get your tickets i will be there talking about the leftist infiltration into the church so you guys do not want to miss that so uh we're we're gonna dive right into it today uh bringing back my good friend brent detweiler brent welcome back to conversations with jeff uh you know glad we can sit down and chat again
1: yes sorry didn't turn out last time
2: yeah no worries no worries it's it's one of those things of you know the the nice thing about doing podcasts is you can always have a do-over if you want so so it worked it works out so
1: uh, well, on my end, not
2: yours. No, no, it's 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 all good. So you know, kind of want to dive right into the topic. You know, there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of stuff going on with with MacArthur, John MacArthur, especially over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but more specifically, over the last couple of months, we've had like Julie Roy's coming out with her expose of her of his pretty extensive wealth and things like that. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of controversy about him as of late. But I wanted to kind of bring it back to you. What, what first piqued your interest into looking into MacArthur and some of these compromises and that sort
1: of thing? Well, it actually goes back to April of 2016 when I was minding my own business. <laughs> and I got an email from a friend who happens to do a nationally syndicated radio program saying that uh, Phil Johnson was laying into me on his Facebook page. And honestly, I didn't know who Phil Johnson was. I had seen him do interviews of John MacArthur, but I didn't know who he was by name. And so anyway, I just jumped on his Facebook page and basically said, hey, Phil, this is Brent. Uh, You know, I see you've got some nice things to say about me. So he was pretty much just trashing me for my sending out of the documents, which was about 600 pages of evidence that had to do uh, with Sovereign Grace Ministries and some of my dear friends, including CJ Mahaney. And that became necessary to send that information out to pastors and then it was posted online. Um, After 10 years, private efforts, trying to help my old colleagues in ministry and, you know, buddies in ministry. And um, so Phil was taking me to task saying, basically, what I had written amounted to nothing, that CJ's a great guy, and, you know, so forth. And then he went on to say, as I began to challenge him, that he had talked to some of the victims he had interacted with some of the victims in the lawsuit against CJ Covenant Life Church and Sovereign Grace and that lawsuit, 43 pages long, alleged a conspiracy to commit and to cover up the sexual abuse
0: of children. forensic investigations cybersecurity and digital forensics new online sessions start every eight weeks no application fee or GRE required visit stevenson.edu online
4: paralegals are highly essential from law firms and courtrooms to insurance real estate HR and more if a paralegal career or law school in your future stevenson university online's bachelors and legal studies will help you achieve your goals affordably with no application fee 100 100% online approved by the American Bar Association with new online sessions starting every 8 weeks get started today visit stevenson.edu/paralegal
1: and so phil said i've interacted with those victims and basically they're not believable and i knew that wasn't true i just knew it because i knew the victims I didn't know they were victims when I was part of Sovereign Grace. I only learned it after I left, but, you know, I had been in close contact with them. So long and short of it is I challenged Phil, who'd you talk to, Phil? Well, I'm not naming names. You said victims, plural, not singular. How many? Well, I'm not telling you how many. And I basically just said, Phil, listen, I know these people. You're making all this up. So then what I did was I contacted them all and said, have you ever talked to a guy named Phil Johnson? And you know, to the person they said, Phil who? Johnson who? Never heard of him, you know? And I wrote a lengthy article about it. So it was at that time when I saw the viciousness of Phil Johnson, because he was also making the claim that since I had been a part of Sovereign Grace, for 27 years and on the board of directors for 25, I must have known about the abuse. But the whole point of my writings is that, you know, my once dear friend, CJ Mahaney, uh, who was the top man. And for many of those years, I was the number two man had withheld that information from me because I would have demanded it was reported to law enforcement. And so Phil was just saying, I don't believe you. And a guy named Tom Chantry came on and Todd Pruitt came on and they're giving me a hard time. Three months later, Tom Chantry was arrested for sexual sadism and he is in jail right now. Um, And so that's how it all began. But, uh, you know, then later I became aware of other issues and uh began to write a little bit more broadly yeah, about yeah. John MacArthur
2: yeah well you know and, and it's interesting too that you know it it seems like it seems like there's a consistent theme when it comes to Phil Johnson and I think I think when you think about it I don't think MacArthur would find himself in as much of a PR battle as he is if it wasn't for Phil because I feel like Phil gets in there and his strategy in order to deflect from MacArthur is to attack but then that ends up making it worse because then people start pushing back and they they don't cave and things like that and and it seems like there's a consistent theme there now one of the things that stuck out to me when you when you were talking about your story and and how how phil was talking to you about cj and the covering up of the of the sex crimes and, and things like that is like macarthur and masters they're dealing with some similar situations where they've been covering up situations like that and then combine that with the fact that chantry again a close friend of phil johnson who again came to his back and started attacking you as well he's now in prison i believe for for sex crimes it's it's, it seems like there again there's a consistent theme here that it it should have no place in the church but is there is there something to that
1: yeah there there is a lot to it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah in fact uh at one point phil took a break from pyromaniacs blog as you well know and he was recommended that Tom Chantry be considered to replace him, and yet, uh, and I'm not accusing Phil in any way, shape, or form of anything having to do with sexual abuse or the like, but they're certainly comparable in terms of their arrogance, and I would say their deceit. And um, and so, I, yeah, I I think what's a shame, and I, I read a lengthy article about this, is You know, I contacted the board of directors at Grace Community, and I was also in contact with MacArthur through his personal assistant, Paul Triss, bringing up my experience with Phil and my observations of Phil. And lo and behold, I got a call from Chris Hamilton, who was chairman of the Elder Board, for about 30 minutes. And he basically said, yeah, you know, sometimes Phil gets carried away, you know, but yeah, that's what we love about Phil. But you know, you you really not need, you know, you really don't need to write about this. You know, we'll we'll talk to Phil. He's a great guy. And I, I just said, well, you know, unless Phil comes clean, unless he acknowledges that he lied and he deceived and really mishandled the thing, because at that point my wife was having surgery her third surgery and later it became life-threatening. And uh, Phil was asking me, why aren't you answering my questions? And I was actually at the hospital, you know, but they were really badgering me (laughs) and basically saying, the whole reason you won't answer our questions is because you're covering it up. You did know about it. I'm just saying, guys, I can't answer right now. I'm sorry but I will get back to you and I've answered this before. I don't cover anything up. But it was that, you know, that I I talked to Hamilton about and I just said, Chris, this has to end. This has to stop. And, um, but it was very clear, you know, that he was out to silence me, but of course I'd have nothing to do with it. And, you know, I immediately that same day, memorialized our conversation in notes and I sent it to Chris as a historic record of what went down. And so it's just been more of that ever since. And yeah, you know, that's where I began to see, my goodness, these guys will stop at nothing. You know, and so when the article came out on the, uh, on the uh, NOC report about Martin Luther King and uh, you know, Paige Rogers did an outstanding job, uh, and then I watched Phil go after her. I just thought, all right, this can't be. Uh, you know, I'm, I am not going to allow this. And, um, and so I began to research it for four more months and then wrote a 135 page article, just documenting uh, to the nth degree, his unbelievable lies I mean, basically the entire story that MacArthur told for 12 years on seven occasions at major conferences and before Grace Church was entirely made up. None of it happened as told and I can say confidently that has been proven beyond a shadow of doubt. So You know, when I I began to look at it and to examine it, I just thought, wow, Uh, it reminded me something of Sovereign Grace. You know, guys that I once thought or knew to be men of integrity turned out over time to protect their fame, to lie and to conceal. You know, I just saw, I hear MacArthur has told this hoax of a story, this fabrication of a story in order to produce this legend, and I've seen that now ever since. It just continues, and uh, yeah, I, I've written John many times, and I've written The Elders many times, and just said, Phil Johnson should be fired, you know, for 101 different reasons, but primarily scripture. Yeah, it says in Titus, for example, an overseer must not be arrogant. I don't know a more arrogant individual, you know, than Phil Johnson when it comes to professing Christ. And I I think he's really demonstrated that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting too, because for people that are watching this and they they don't know what story we're talking about when it comes to the whole MLK thing is that John, Mm -hmm. John MacArthur claimed that he, that he was there uh, in, in the South when the assassination of MLK happened and that, in that he was in a particular place with particular people, prominent people like Charles Evers, who was the, who was the head of the NAACP in that area John Perkins who's a fa- who's a famous civil rights activist now he claimed that he right. was with them that they all traveled to Memphis the night of the assassination they went there he he literally said that he stood in the blood of MLK he stood on the toilet where the shot came from 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 the uh, assassin even though he did not actually stand on a on a toilet it, like there's a whole thing but it's been right. systematically proven as false especially with Paige Rogers article that was po- that was posted on a knock report and the thing is, is that they can't even come to admit that it was wrong. They can't even come to admit that anything, that there's anything nefarious here, even though both eyewitnesses have said he wasn't there. Um, you know, all the circumstantial evidence proved that he wasn't there. There's a major problem here. And they, they just dig in their heels and Phil Johnson goes on the attack. You know, like you mentioned, knock report. I'm business partners now with JD Rucker, who runs knock report like Phil contacted jd to try to intimidate him to take the article yeah. down and he refused there's yeah. a, again a consistent theme of protecting the house there at grace it's it's yeah. dangerous dangerous territory
0: stop the hacks stop the attacks stop the attacks and start taking your it career to the next level the masters in Cybersecurity from stevenson university online can keep you one step ahead of the criminals and One Step Ahead, Career Advancement. Complete your online degree in as little as 18 months with convenient and affordable classes. Stevenson University Online, your partner for professional success. Visit stevenson.edu cyberwar. Bank of Clark
3: County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website, at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC.
1: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I just I wrote a, you know, the initial article I did was was quite detailed, quite at length. So I just recently wrote a much shorter one called The 15 Audacious Lives, uh, told by John MacArthur to create his legendary tale about the events of April Fourth, 1968. And um, Yeah. I mean, he said he was arrested for preaching the gospel the evening Martin Luther King was murdered. That's not true. That he spent the night in jail. Not true. That the sheriff took all his money. Not true. That he was a friend of Charles Evers. Not true. That he was in the office of Evers in Jackson, Mississippi when King was assassinated. Likewise, not true. That Perkins was there with him also that a man burst through the door saying Martin Luther King was assassinated, totally disproven, that he was the only white man present with Evers and Perkins and the other black leaders, that, he had, that they had to get him out of Jackson because his life was in jeopardy, totally untrue, that they hustled him through Jackson, put him in a car, drove to Memphis, the site of the murder, they arrived within hours, not true. There was no police guard on the crime scene. They were able to not only see the blood pool, but they were able to, I'm sorry, they were—they saw the blood pool even before it was cleaned up. And then they were able to enter the boarding house across the street where James L. Ray shot. And then like you said, climbed up on the toilet and so forth and looked out the window. None of this true. It's all been proven. You know, one of the things I did, I talked to Andrew Satson, who was the biographer for Charles Evers, the civil rights leader. And I said, you know, in your three years of work that you did with Charles Evers and all the research, did John MacArthur's name ever come up? No, I've never heard of the man. And this is the definitive work, the definitive memoir. Of Charles Evers. And did Charles Evers ever tell you about a trip to Memphis? No. Standing on the balcony of Lorraine Hotel? No. Going into the boarding house across the street? No. No. Never came up. You know, and this is the defendant, you know, he's a, a highly esteemed memoirist.
2: Yeah, it's it's it, it's crazy because I remember even even uh talking to Paige Rogers and, and she'd reached out to the guy who had who had written the autobi or the biography of John MacArthur. Must not autobiography because it's almost right. what it was, but but he but he but he specifically claimed that he didn't investigate anything of what was put in the right. book. He just took what was given to him and then put it down into written form, and that was that was the story that he told. So it's it's you know, when they when they point to these different places of well, here's here's evidence. Well the evidence there is no evidence because he's just repeating a story that he was told by probably phil or macarthur himself and that, that's the that i think is the important thing that people understand about this is that there is no evidence to support what macarthur's saying none i have not seen a shred a shred of evidence that supports it but yet they they keep telling everybody that we're just a bunch of wild conspiracy theorists
1: right well as you know recently Uh, Phil did an interview with Justin Peters uh, on his podcast show, and in that context, he cited a letter uh, by a gentleman by the name of uh, David Nicholas, who's the president of Shasta Bible College and graduate school up in Redding, California. And this was supposed to be evidence that MacArthur's story, maybe a little fuzzy, maybe due to memory, hasn't always gotten it right, you know, that type of thing, because they've been so exposed now. You know, Phil's had to say, well, you know, you can't expect John, blah, 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 to remember everything perfectly. But he's been telling the story over the last 15 years, and they continue to stand by the story. So it's not like at 81, advanced in years, I mean, this goes back to when he was a younger individual, and his mind was completely fit. And everyone would have attested to that. But in fact, in this letter um, you know that Phil said was evidence, it actually was contrary to that. And that in this letter that uh, Phil refers to, Nicholas says, the sheriff then demanded that we show up at his office the following day. Oh, it was after the assassination. At 11, at 10 a.m., our entire team of five white guys from Biola arrived on time as we walked in. The office radio was blaring out the news that Reverend Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis. And I know we don't have time to give the whole context, but basically, in this letter that Paul, that Phil cites as evidence, he actually, Nicholas, states that Oh, no, I was with MacArthur. And the night of the assassination, we were doing a meeting in Mendenhall with John Perkins. And we came out of the meeting. As we came out of the meeting, the sheriff of Mendenhall pulled us over. And John MacArthur didn't have his license. He was driving. And so he said to John, all right, I'm going to see all you guys in my jail tomorrow at 10 a.m. So they show up on time, 10 a.m. And... That's when the radio's blaring that Martin Luther King had been assassinated the night before. And that's when Nicholas says they found out about it. It was the next morning. and it was in Mendenhall, not the night before, in Jackson, Mississippi, in the office of Charles Evers as uh, you know, John MacArthur. You know, stated time after time after time. So, I mean, the evidence is irrefutable, indisputable, overwhelming. You know, the whole story is a complete hoax, and it's been proven to be a complete hoax. But, of course, they have to go after anybody, you know, who brings these things up. And will libel them, uh, demean them, discredit them, attack them. And it's just their mode of operation. You know, you've seen it. I mean, last time we did this interview, you were telling me a little bit of what you've been through. And I I think maybe you could reiterate I mean, when you personally experience. Because I know you loved Phil Johnson and John MacArthur. And you never thought you'd be in this position. But when you began to just hold them accountable, what happened in your case?
2: Oh, yeah. Like, like for, me, for me, I grew up in what I would always consider like a MacArthur household. I, I was literally born into Grace Community Church. That's where we went when I was a little kid. We moved away. My family, we always went to a church where one of the pastors was a pastor from Grace. So every single time we, we moved to Washington, Went to a grace church. We went to Arizona, went to a couple of different churches then in, in that area. All pa- or all former pastors from Grace Community Church. That that was the way that I was raised. And probably up until 2016-ish, I would still refer to myself as like a MacArthurite. Like he he was he was my guy. Phil Johnson was my favorite blogger. I used to I used to read Pyromaniacs every time he came mm-hmm. out with a new thing. I've been to Shepherd's Conference twice. He was always my favorite speaker every time. I still remember his, his sermon he gave on the sissification of the church. It was a great sermon. Um, but when, when I began to see some of this hypocrisy, especially when it came to the dealing with issues of uh, interfaith dialogue, uh, when Phil Johnson came to the defense of, of James White. Now, and on that issue, and I'm not going to dive too far into the weeds on this one, but that's something where John MacArthur has always preached against interfaith dialogue, which means that we should not sit on an even playing field with a false teacher of a false religion and act as if we just have some slight differences of opinion. We're both equal, right? We should, we should go into it as a debate, not like sitting down with a Muslim and we, believe, we both believe in God. We just disagree on the theology of it, right? So MacArthur's always preached against that. Well, James White actually did one of those. And all of a sudden, then they changed their tune. That's when I began to see some of the hypocrisy and I started raising concerns. I had no following at that time. Mm-hmm. I think I had 50 followers on Twitter and all of a sudden Phil Johnson starts coming after me personally and attacking me again. I'm a nobody. A no, like no, I had no blog, no <laughs> podcast, no anything. And he just came after me and right. it just, it was systematic. It was continual. And my thing was probably to my detriment to a certain degree, but I didn't give up. I just, kept, I just kept going. Well, it, it, it eventually got to the point to where he started personally attacking the people around me. He started sending me information about a pastor that I, that I was close with at the, at the time about personal marital information about when he was a pastor at Grace that you would only know if you were in their marital counseling. Like- mm. To to try to discredit the guy, they came after me on a personal level through through all sorts of wild accusations at me because of extended family members and friends and and things like that. I was accused of being into, in their words, necromancy evangelism, because <laughs> because I I have a family member who owns a freak show circus themed nightclub, like that. That's their kind. That's their kind of personal attacks, and that was their way of trying to discredit me from anything that I was talking about. I ended up having somebody that, that showed up the day after I was at a particular location, took a picture, posted it on Twitter on an, on an anonymous account to let them right. know, hey, we know where you are. We know what's going on, all that kind of stuff. I talked to a police detective. They said, you should probably pr- press charges. I didn't. Um, but at the same time, it's one, it's one of those things where I, I, I've been through it myself. I've seen how they do it. It's standard procedure. Now, I'll throw this out there, too, and then I'll, I'll throw it back to you. If anybody's watched Leah Remini's show on Scientology, the Scientology, the aftermath. If you haven't, I highly recommend doing it because as I was watching watching this show, it was fascinating to me because the exact same techniques that the Church of Scientology uses for those that come out of Scientology and then expose them for essentially being a cult is the same tactics that Grace Community Church is using and John McCarthy is using and Phil Johnson is using to discredit any of their credits. It's the exact same mentality. It's the exact same strategy. And I guarantee you, if you watch the show and then you go look at, at how Phil Johnson is behaving, you look at, at the financial issues, you look at the cover-ups, you look at the fact that they don't want people in their church going to the police if they're the victim of abuse. They want to deal with right. it inside the church. Yeah. It's all the same thing. I, and I've been saying this I I get I get a lot of flack for saying this, but this is like an, this is an evangelical cult. It, it really yeah. is.
1: No, I think you're right. And I mean, uh, this has been cited different places. I certainly cited in my article, but uh the seminary and the college or university, the masters university and seminary are part of the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. That's the accrediting agency. And they have to do site visits from time to time because I haven't been, yeah, I have to do site visits. And so they did a site visit March of 2019 and, and issued a report. And this was a report that was ever so damning. And this accentuates how harmful it is. I mean, we're not talking about innocent issues, you know, a few little small lives here or there. This was a team of six individuals. I don't need to read their name for the sake of brevity, but let me give you their positions. This was a visiting team. These are highly respected and distinguished professionals. One, the president of William Jessup University, second, Dean, School of Education, Azusa Pacific University. Third person, Director of Student Affairs and Assessment and Research at the California Polytechnical University. Fourth person, Vice President for Finance and Business Operations, Franciscan School of Theology. Fifth, Director of Educational Effectiveness, West Coast University. Sixth person, Vice President and Liaison
3: Happy holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County, member FDIC.
1: And they went in, did the visit, wrote a report, and this is just a, a, a summary. Uh, it's a lengthy report, but this is what they said. And what is true here is true, yeah, I mean, this is the way they conduct themselves. They said, the finding of a pervasive culture and climate of fear intimidation, bullying, and uncertainty. The fear of speaking up, specific reports of unethical behavior by key leaders and fear of reprisals were consistent and corroborated through multiple sources. The related reports of a lack of leadership ethics And accountability that emerged, now listen to this, was unmatched for members of this review team. In other words, these six distinguished academic leaders had never, ever, in their professional history, seen anything like this. And then they say, it seems, what I just read, this has been part of the operation for so long. It is practiced without question and has resulted in a toxic environment that must be immediately addressed. Now, this is the group that when they issued the report, MacArthur went to before the student body and said it was a satanic attack. And then he was forced to back off because it was nothing of the kind. But that's so typical. That's often one of the cards that is played, you know, that we're being persecuted, that Satan is attacking, and it's coming from people who hate the gospel, and these are all smoke screens. They're individuals who are vengeful or bitter, and they're just out to get us, you know, because we're faithful, and they aren't. They're opposed to us, and that certainly has not been the case with Paige, with you, with me, with Julie Roy's. And others who love the gospel and yet can't stand the evil that has been concealed and propagated in the church and in the educational institutions there.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and, and it's really interesting for me, what really opened my eyes was that message where uh, where John MacArthur was talking to the students that, that you cited, and he, and he said that this was a demonic attack. For me, one of the things that really opened my eyes to okay, we're dealing with a cult here, um, is is I, I started seeing parallels between a lot of his wording and David Miscavige, who's the head guy of Scientology, right? And and one of the th- one of the things that MacArthur kept saying was that this is a personal attack against MacArthur. They're coming after MacArthur because of his faithfulness, right? And 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 they're coming after him, and that and then he accused a lot of his accusers of just wanting to take over the seminary, take over the university. They're just trying to position themselves for a higher position or a promotion or to be in leadership or, you know, it's, it's jealousy. I'm like, this, this is like manipulation of the highest order in, in, in my opinion. And, And it's really scary that this is happening within evangelicalism. This is happening within Christianity. And I would make the argument, this is, this is probably one of the most cultish things that I've seen within the Christian church and it's like you're blending pretty decent theology with horrific behavior and occult mentality. That's dangerous, dangerous to the future of the church.
1: Yeah, it, it sure is. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I saw this, unfortunately, in Sovereign Grace Ministries, which I helped to start in 1982, you know, that as we grew and expanded and kind of became the premier church planning network in the United States, and um, we became very, very well known in the evangelical and reformed circles. You know, I began to see CJ was increasingly uh, willing to alter our theology in order to accommodate the fame. And then I began to see increasingly a willingness to uh, be deceitful in order to protect. And that ultimately gave expression you know, and what I discovered was, you know, widespread commitment to cover up the sexual abuse of children is about fame and fortune, you know, because the ultimate concern was if people knew how bad this was, they would leave. And when they leave, the money leaves. So ultimately, I'm afraid it gets down to fame and fortune, you know, and that's the impetus to then attack individuals. and, uh, And yet... You know, they're the ones who have created this false notoriety. I mean, um, I noticed a while back, as I was reading more about uh, John MacArthur, you know, uh, another off-repeated story was about his car wreck between his freshman and sophomore year when he was in college at Bob Jones, and he's told this story many, many times, and um uh, I don't want to take too much time to tell it, but on one account, and I'm quoting him, he said, so we were driving across the United States, et cetera. We had an accident. I was thrown out of the car, slid along the highway over 100 yards. Okay, That's yards, a football field. Of course, wound up with severe burns and friction problems and scars everywhere, et cetera. But he says, the Lord spared me and every other person in the car, even though it rolled at 60 to 70 miles an hour. Okay, that's account one. A little bit later, uh, the numbers start going up. It's even worse. So he says, Now I was thrown out of a car going 75 miles an hour. So it's up from 65 or 70 to now it's up to 75. And then he says, I was then sliding down the highway beside the car. I could see it spinning beside me and went about 125 or 130 yards on my back. And on the front, I still had my shirt and pants and belt on the back, nothing but asphalt, all embedded in there. And so the story is, he was thrown from the car going 75 miles an hour, The car spins on its top, it's spinning like this and for 135 yards, now over way over the length of a football field, MacArthur is right next to the vehicle, sliding on his back on a straight straight line next to a spinning car. And as he says, the front of me, no problems, back of me, nothing but asphalt. This week I talked to an individual who was a, uh, he calls himself a senior accident investigator who did this kind of work for 12 years. And I, I just sent him all my notes and I just said, can you give me your professional opinion on this? And this is what he said, there's no way a human body could slide that far on his back, 135 yards. The pure physics would have the person rolling. Since the body is heavier in the front than the back, also the head is the heaviest, and keeping your head up would cause you to roll. So John kind of is telling the story, he's on a theme park ride at Disney, a water slide for 135 yards and just sliding, you know? And he's just on his back, head up, no, no problems. And this crash light investigator said, it's impossible. You can't do that. If you even tried to keep your head up because it's the heaviest, gravity is such that it would throw you over and your front side is heavier. So gravity, the physics of it would throw you over. But John's on his back and then he says, he, as John MacArthur, might have slid, listen to this, 30 to maybe at the outside 50 feet, not 135 yards, 30 to 50 feet. 50 yards would even be impossible at any of the various speeds that are mentioned. When a body is tossed from a moving car, inevitably, the head hits something. So he basically says later, I don't wanna read the whole thing, that it would have been a fatality. You would have died. You you, you are not thrown from a car at 75 miles an hour and survive. Yeah. But yeah. this you know, and, and this is what I found. There are other illustrations I could give, but these are these legendary tales that he's told. And, Nobody's researched them. I mean, he would tell them before the digital age, in some cases, you know, uh, before anybody w- really caught on to the fact that he was a serial liar. And I called him that. I mean, I've even said, you know, he's a sociopathic liar. And by that, I mean uh, a sociopath lies without any pains of conscience. And so they can tell you a lie and yet have a serious face and they can tell you a lie and lie about others without any sorrow that they are harming, harming and injuring others. You know, and as we talked last week, you know, I wrote an article recently about when John, uh, February twenty third, gave a message at Grace Community on the benefits of suffering for Christ from Second Corinthians four. Wonderful exegesis, I would say, sociopathic application where he applied it to him that what he suffered in recent months through the reporting that we have done, uh, he is suffering for Christ. You know, and he's got Julie in mind, Julie Roy's at the Roy's report, myself in mind, I'm sure he also has you in mind. He has others who, you know, who have done good reporting, like Saker Woods and so forth, you know, just trying to get the truth out. You know, but he says, you know, I'm being persecuted you know, I'm suffering for Christ. They're out to kill my reputation. You know, but I'm filling up the sufferings, you know, of Christ, our Lord, you know. And these are people who hate the gospel. I mean, it's all a fabrication. He's not suffering, you know, because he loves the gospel. I'm grateful he loves the gospel. I'm grateful he's preaching the gospel. My work is motivated by the gospel because it's this reproach upon the gospel that ultimately motivates me. But again, this is one of his fairy tale stories and he's just deceiving the entire church and it's intentional. And when you, I mean, like, if I was suffering for wrongs done, And as a consequence of those wrongs, people were writing about me and exposing me. But then I got in front of my mega church, and I said to them, I'm being persecuted because I'm so godly. I'm being persecuted for preaching the gospel. You know, I'm suffering like Christ suffered. I'm imitating his example. I mean, God strike me dead. I, I should be carried out dead, like Ananias and Sapphira, because that's blasphemy. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain, and uh, it, you know it just doesn't get any more serious than that, in my opinion. Oh
2: yeah, for mm-hmm. sure, and, and I think that the the consistent application, I, th- I think, in a lot of this is that we're we're dealing with consistent lies, and each one of these lies uh, props him up, makes him look good. So, like for example, yeah. with, with the accident that you cited. His takeaway from that was that as he was laying on the hospital bed, he basically gave his life over to, to full-time ministry, which again, it gives him more credibility. Like, look at me. I went through this horrific thing, and then I gave my life over to ministry and to do God's will, uh, you know, going into pastoral ministry and things like that. It, and that that was that was his takeaway from that. Same thing with with the whole MLK thing. The MLK thing was to give him credibility to talk a lot about these social justice issues and and things like black lives matter and things like a lot of these racial issues and things like that then he had this the his football story where he claimed he turned down an NFL career in order in order to go into ministry again giving him more credibility there's a consistent theme here but then I think for me the takeaway then comes back to Julie Roy's recent article talking about the 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 massive wealth of John MacArthur and his ministries and things like that because because I because I think that With when you have guys like phil and you've got other people around macarthur that are defending macarthur to to as as far as they can possibly defend him right it's got to be they're protecting the house that's their income source that's their livelihood (laughs) they're like they've built up this massive empire that it's it's almost like it's too big to fail in their mind
1: right no exactly right they're uh you know let's see if i can find this one second yeah, I've been uh, reading through Exodus for my devotions, and this was uh, Jethro's advice to Moses as to the kind of men to appoint, you know, to oversee the people of Israel and to bring righteous judgment. And he says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties, tens, and let them judge the people at all times. You know, and so, I mean, that's what you need. Leaders who fear God, who are trustworthy and who won't accept the bribe. And, you know, a bribe can come in many forms. It can come in the form of promotion. It can come in the form of increased salaries and bonuses. It can come in the form of a severance payment if you sign a non disclosure agreement. All those are, in effect, bribes to keep men in good stead because they are being rewarded. But if you cross MacArthur, there's a long history of men who were fired and then um, slandered and um, harmed, uh, you know, and that's just not what you want. I, yeah, I mean, this, this stories, you know, as recently, I, I did a little bit more work on um, MacArthur's claims at the Shepherd's Conference, maybe you were there in 2003, you know, where he told the audience about the study Bible and the work that he did on the MacArthur study Bible and this is Thousands of Pastors, 2003, quote, you know, writing that study Bible was without question the greatest spiritual exercise of my life. That may be true, but the phrase here is, you know, writing that study Bible. So he's claiming that he he wrote that study Bible. And later he says, it was a multi-year. You know, it was one of those years where, where it took me 30 years to accumulate the information for it. So he's claiming for the entire study Bible, it was 30 years of collecting information. And then it took three years to put it together. And then the final year, fourth year, was an intense year of about, I would say, just in all honesty, seven to 14 hour days for a solid year, living and breathing with every note in that Bible. It took me about a year to physically recover from it. And so that's the tale he's telling these pastors at the Shepherd's Conference. And yet, and I had to do some research on this, in the New King James Version of the MacArthur Study Bible, there is a section on how the personal notes uh, actually came about. This does not show up in the NASB, in the NIV, or in the ESV versions. It's only in the King James Version. But in that, as you read it, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing for brevity's sake, but he basically, I mean, it's just a small thing. For instance, He says in these notes, he doesn't convey this to the Shepherds Conference, but he says in this, gratitude and abundance must be given to the faculty of the master Seminary for their assistance in original research and carefully prepared first draft material for the study notes in the Old Testament. Using the foundation of that original research and material, I I worked and reworked the study notes into their final form. And then he decides... He cites 10 professors. So 10 professors did all the research. MacArthur did none of the research. And those 10 individuals wrote the entire first draft, all the notes, all the introductions, the whole thing. And then MacArthur worked over it and reworked it. I worked and reworked the study notes into the final form. So I'm sure that took effort. But when you read, when you hear what he says to the Shepherds Conference years later, it's just like, oh, John, tell him, you didn't even write the draft, you didn't do any of the research for the Old Testament, and then tell him what happened with the New Testament, because in the King James introduction, New King James introduction, you know, it says of the New Testament, a team composed of the master seminary faculty and editors, like grace to you, who worked regularly editing my books, accepted the task of spending long hours culling the salient features of mine from my research in the study note form. Likewise, from that first draft, I worked to bring the material to its final form. And so then he mentioned 10 faculty members and editors who took his notes over the years from his sermons And out of that, they went through this massive undertaking, you know, and created the first draft for all the study notes. And then John worked from that and uh, edited them. And, you know, it's just another one of those things. And uh, and also in the King James, a uh, New King James uh, personal notes version, he said we worked for two intense years at the Shepherd's Conference. Now he's saying four years. And at the Shepherd's Conference, you know, he says it took a year to recover. And I'm just thinking, John, a year to recover? I mean, were you bedridden? Were you put on Prozac? I mean, were you have an emotional breakdown? Were you just incapacitated? It took a year to recover? What do you mean? I just think, no. You may have needed a couple weeks off when the project was all done, but it doesn't take a year to recover, especially when everybody else has done almost all the work.
2: Yeah, which I which I think is interesting. It's an interesting thing talking about a lot of the work that that they have other people doing in compiling these books and and study Bibles and and all that kind of stuff. Mm Because one one of my big concerns, whether it's legal, whether it's legal or not, and I don't know the legalities of a lot of this kind of stuff, but it sure seems like like MacArthur is double, triple, quadruple dipping in in Mm -hmm. his income when you when you think about it, because he's getting paid a salary. By, his, by Grace Community Church, essentially in order to prepare sermons. That's his primary role over there right. to prepare and teach sermons, right? And
1: yeah. then he's got his- That's a great job description, by the way. Yeah. I wish I had that descri- job description The 30 years I was a pastor doing nothing, nothing but studying and preaching, nothing. Wow, yeah. what a life. I mean- Oh, yeah. That, and, and, what and a life. You,
2: yeah, and when, and when you think about it, he, he's, he's, get, he's getting a full-time salary from there. Then he's getting- a full-time salary. And again, I don't know what, what number of hours he's listing on, on the tax forms, but he but the kind of money we're talking about, it's a full-time salary from Grace to You, where they're also selling the books that are written in or by that was paid for by the church, right? So now, now you've got another source of income from the one amount of work, right? And then you've also got things like Shepherd's Conference. So, so you're making more money off of, off of your sermons. You you've got book royalties where you're making money off the sermons that you've already been paid for twice when you think about it between grace to you and grace community church plus yes. the royalties plus the royalties and then he was for the longest time ma- making a full-time a salary from the master's university i believe he's still over at the seminary but all that's rooted and based upon his teaching it seems like he prepares one sermon now he's got five or six different income sources for the one sermon and then the question becomes if you're going into ministry, right, and, and your whole purpose is to build up the church and further the gospel and teach people, I mean, it, I don't remember the Apostle Paul figuring out ways in order to exploit one sermon and getting five, three, three to five, six-figure incomes off of it. It just, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when I was part of Sovereign Grace, I had considerable fiscal responsibilities, so I was kind of the the board member in charge of overseeing all that we were doing in terms of financial policy and such. And, you know, the advice that I had gotten from professionals in the field is that you you can't double dip. That would be considered private enrollment under IRS regulations. And so I put into place policies and procedures that prevented that from happening. The very thing that John MacArthur has done, we codified so that we couldn't do it. It was an in our policy manual. And so if you wanted to receive all the book royalties, you had to write those books on your own time. And if you use Sovereign Grace staff, they had to work on their time and you would pay them directly. I said the same thing up for Sovereign Grace Music. Bob Coughlin uh, used to work for me. He was a close friend. He heads up Sovereign Grace Music. And it was like, okay, you know, Bob, songs that you write on your own Great. But if they're written, you know, uh, while well, you're a pastor on my staff or for Sovereign Grace, no, it can't be. And that's just the way it was, you know. But yeah, I, I I think what's so disturbing is that this has just not been known. I mean, Julie did the groundbreaking work, you know, on this piece. So three salaries, as I would estimate a million to a million and a half a year, you know, a salary from the Massachusetts University and Seminary, a salary from Grace to You and a salary from Grace Community Church. I would guesstimate a million to a million and a half in salaries. And then above and beyond that, he gets all the royalties from the MacArthur Study Bible. I've been told that the guys who helped him were paid stipends. They didn't get any of the royalties. Likewise, the 150 books, guys were paid stipends. They didn't get the royalties. John got all the royalties and his name was put on the book, but in fact, he didn't write the books. Hmm. And so, you know, MacArthur is a multi millionaire. And yet, Phil Johnson, when he was on the Justin Peters show after this had come out, is I'm just trying to make MacArthur sound like he, he he lives a very very simplified lifestyle, and I was just like, oh my goodness, he's got three houses, you know, one uh, that is six tenths no three tenths of a mile from a world class. It's called Spanish Hills Country Club in Camarillo, California, kind of I guess in your neck of the woods world-class, world-renowned, exquisite club, and it's three-tenths of a mile, six-minute walk, literally. Well, he's always been an avid golfer. You know, and Phil Johnson, you know, in the Justin Peters program said, I think it's just a condominium down there. You know, and it's 11 miles from the ocean. Well, the club makes a big deal out of the fact that you can sit in it, see the Pacific Ocean, feel the breezes coming in. (laughs) And I did an article on it, have pictures of it. I mean, it is quite the place. But yeah, that's where MacArthur would go. And he's down there playing golf, maybe a couple of rounds a day and working on his books. You know, fine, but tell us about it. You know, and, you know, Phil, it's a single family dwelling. It's not a condo unit, by the way. Similarly, oh, yeah, and he's got a cabin. Yeah, it's a nice cabin, Phil said to Justin Peters. Yeah, it sure is. Seven bedrooms and seven and a half baths. Not bad on five acres. Hmm, that's a pretty nice cabin, I would say. And then you know, once it came out, you know, the Santa Clarita home, five bedrooms, you've been there, maybe you can tell a little bit more of the tennis court and, and uh, yeah, swimming pool, 2.3 acres, beautiful home, beautiful property. Yeah, wonderfully secluded, secluded. So once that came out, you know, Phil tells Justin Peters, so what is he supposed to do? Because the property value has grown up. Is he supposed to move into a smaller cottage? kind of implying that the place is a cottage. So he's just supposed to move into a smaller cottage. And then in that same interview, he says to just show how MacArthur's was such a simplified lifestyle. Phil said, and MacArthur's only ever owned one vehicle. I said, Come on, Phil. And as I looked into that, I discovered MacArthur was getting new vehicles that were be. Provided to him free of charge by the local major car dealership that was right down the street from the church building, and you had that same experience where you observed that. And so, MacArthur was trading in cars every six to twelve months and driving the very best vehicles you possibly could. But Phil makes it sounds like you know that me and Patricia are just so frugal, so poor, so such of such limited means they only even have one car i mean it almost makes it sound like you know macarthur's gotta take public transportation to get over to the office or something if patricia needs the car that day and it's just like wow it's just that's just it's wrong
2: well and and, and again if they were just honest about a lot of this kind of stuff a lot of this would not be an issue for example the car the I like I get that in the sense of if you if you have the guy who owns a dealership in in, in your church and this right. is what he wants to do it's like cool there, there there's there's no issue because I totally understand that the guy's free to give MacArthur whatever kind of car he wants he can give him the nicest right. car he can give him the cheapest car it doesn't really matter it's he feels like it's his you know help or he's helping his pastor or whatever it is that's great. The issue yeah. the issue is the cover up. And I think that yes. this is where what's interesting is that you had said earlier that, that Pastor MacArthur, it's almost like he doesn't have a conscience, right? And so he just tells these stories and, and there's there's no there's no reservation, there's no feeling like, okay, this is wrong for me to tell this. I feel like Phil, even though he gets a bad rap in a lot of this, I feel like he's he's still got a conscience because I think he understands what should be happening. He 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 mm-hmm. knows what he, he understands, okay. He is making a lot of money. Now I've got to spin it. I've got to make it sound good. But I think he realizes it's it's not necessarily the best look to have three homes, have brand new cars, be making mi- millions of dollars every single year and all this kind of stuff. That's why he's downplaying a lot of it, as opposed to just saying, hey, here's the truth. Here's here's the way that we set up the structure. And you know, if you like it, don't like it, tough, whatever it is. To me, that would be the better way of handling it all.
1: Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I mean, when I was a Sovereign Grace, having a position that I did, you know, my approach was always, and we were in the Washington, DC area. So we were always aware that at any point, you know, the Washington Post could come knocking on our door and saying, Hey, how much money do you guys make? And so we agreed at that point when I was there that we'd be totally open and honest, not only about our salaries. But about our benefits schedule, you know, in other words, our retirement accounts, you know, disability insurance, life insurance and all that, all the other benefits of housing allowance, because a lot of times guys conceal their total income and say, well, I only really receive such and such as my wage, but in addition to their wage are also paid a housing allowance, which is non-taxable income that they don't have to report as wage on the W-2. And so, you know, guys who are unscrupulous in ministry can cover a lot up. And I just said, you know, gentlemen, if, if, and really it was when they come, we're going to be totally open and honest. You know, and so after I left and after I had to begin to expose so I'm Grace. I wrote an article way back, I think it was 2011, where I wrote Tommy Hill, who was the director of finances, and then just said, hey, Tommy, what is CJ being paid now since I've left a couple of years later? Because uh, CJ said, ask Tommy, I don't even know what I'm being paid. So I write Tommy, he's an old friend, you know, and Tommy wouldn't tell me. So pretty much as soon as I left, they changed the policy. Where they were no longer going to reveal salary and benefits, and I just think, you know, if you're in the ministry, you know, I'm not asking this for, you know, people who just work regular jobs. Although CEOs, you know, they've got to reveal what they make; they're accountable to their board and shareholders and stuff. But I just think for men in ministry, you know, the people should should ask my personal perspective what I'm making. You know, I made my total income, total income from all sources, uh, was 140000 when I left. And I was the top paid, second highest paid individual. And uh, I don't know what's happened since then.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things, too, where I I've begun to have this feeling like, as Christians, we shouldn't be focused so much on building up these mega churches. And, I, and I, think a lo- I think I think that that would go a long way to helping to avoid a lot of these situations because I'm seeing repeated behavior among different ministries uh, among a lot of these mega churches. And I think if instead the strategy was you build a church, you get to a certain number of people, split it off into area or location or whatever it is, keep it manageable to where P- the congregation is walking through life with their pastor. Because I got to tell you, People at Grace Community Church, the vast majority of them are not walking through life with Pastor John MacArthur. Like I, I used to I used to go there right after my wife and I got married. We lit we lived out in that area. We attended John MacArthur's church for two years. And I and I gotta say, there was a distance, there was a separation between the pastors and the congreg and the congregation. The pastors would file in together, they'd congregate together, they'd talk together and sit together, and then you'd have the church, it would be two or three pews back. And there was this level of separation. You're not walking through life with people. You don't know right. how they're living their life. All, all you know is what you see on Sunday. And I think that to a certain degree, it would alleviate a lot of this greed and, and empire building among the church mm-hmm. by limiting the capacity that, uh, for your local church. I don't know. I mean, it's just, again, it's just an out there idea.
1: Well, you know, what ends up happening is, yeah, it, it's all about Sunday morning all about Sunday morning and you know that's where uh, Steve Larson who's a teaching fellow at Ligonier, friend of MacArthur's preaches at Grace Community you know uh, was there back in February and you know that's when he said I love John MacArthur and then he said John MacArthur is the greatest pastor on the planet and then he went on to call him Atlas and the only man standing and Uniquely raised up by God, and yeah, just accolade after accolade. I, I thought it was idolatrous. I thought it was pure flattery, and um, and not true. But of course, when I hear him say he's a great oh, he called him America's pastor. Yeah, and yet. You know, I, um, again, being part of Sovereign Grace, you know, close friends with CJ, number two guy, all that stuff. You know, back in the 2000s, you know, CJ built a close friendship with John MacArthur. And that came about because the guys on MacArthur staff were saying, Hey, CJ, we're having a hard time with John. Uh, You know, we see what you're doing in Sovereign Grace, the friendships, the relationships, all that kind of thing. And we just don't have any of that here. And we feel very distant and we uh, were never encouraged, never cared for, uh, John doesn't spend time with us. You know, we're basically just professionals and it's, it's difficult, we're all thinking about leaving. And there's three different guys, all executive pastors at different points in the history of the church. And all three of them left the church. And these are top executive pastors over the lack a personal relationship with John MacArthur. You know, he's cloistered with his family and that's about it. And, you know, I could even say more, but I, I don't think John MacArthur knows, has ever really experienced fellowship. You know, it says we're be devoted to fellowship. I don't think he knows that. You know, and when it says, you know, uh, America's pastor, I don't think he's a pastor at all. In fact, I don't think he's a pastor even by calling. I mean, the Lord knows. He certainly is a teacher by calling. But I have not seen the evidences of pastoral care. You know, as it says in Scripture, that if you're a pastor, you're a shepherd, you're amongst the sheep, you know? And yet what's happened in our day is... Pastoring has been equating with preaching. No. Pastoring is hands-on involvement with caring for the sheep whom you know by name. And you're among them. Uh, Yeah, John 10, the good shepherd. So different our day. Now it's about performing. Now it's about preaching. Now it's about lighting it up. You know, building a massive audience, and it's about smoke shows and powerful music. Yeah, and and I and I just think, you know, all those faithful shepherds, true shepherds, genuine shepherds, who are out there, working hard to prepare the messages, but also caring for the souls of people, Mm, and getting paid fifty thousand dollars to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, for, that's for sure. Now, now, for people that are watching this, and again, there's, there's gonna be some people that, that love MacArthur, there's gonna be some people where their eyes have been opened and they're like, yeah, I, I don't like that guy. But what, what's, what's the takeaway you know, if, for, for anybody really? Because I think, I, I always like to leave these on a practical level. Like what, what do we do with this information? But what's the takeaway just for the average everyday Christian?
1: Well, I, I think it's in one way unfortunate, but people need to hold their leaders accountable. You know, in Scripture, uh, the way I understand it, our first recourse of accountability is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so often, not so often, in every case, these guys go awry because they've lost their relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you just don't act, in my opinion, like MacArthur and Phil Johnson and have an imminent close relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not possible. You know, Revelation 2, 4, I'll remove the lampstand from amongst you unless you return to me as your first love. You know, and so it's that first love, Christ above everything. Uh, there is no safety. There is no accountability. Nothing will ever work in terms of man of God staying on the straight and narrow unless he's really committed to the chief shepherd of the sheep. And is passionately in love with Jesus. Yet you know, sometimes when I hear John speak, I just think he looks miserable to me. I mean, the exegesis is sound, but he looks so unhappy. He appears to lack such joy, and personally, I don't see him referring to Jesus in a personal, intimate, and passionate way. It's doctrinal truth, you know, that he's conveying. And that always concerns me, always concerns me when I see that, because the good news, the gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And so when you preach the gospel, you're preaching the work of Jesus Christ. You're preaching his person and his work. So it's it's about him. So that's the first line. You know, but then second of all, you know, it's got to be your elders, your local elders. So 1 Timothy 5, you know, if you have a straying elder who continues in sin, you know, they're to be reproved, they're to be rebuked. And so if a pastor falls from the Lord, and then it's the responsibility of his colleagues, not the church at large, his colleagues to come alongside, but then when the elders are corrupted too, and I mean, that's the case with the Grace Community elders. They're all complicit. They read my stuff. I mean, uh, you know, they've recently blocked me from sending them material, but they're well aware of all my material. And they know that, you know, MacArthur's stories are fabrications. And yet, they're not going to take a stand. They know. Phil Johnson should be removed. They know that. But they don't. And so here you have compromised elders. You know, and so what do you do? And yet, they're misleading the sheep. You know, and, and that's where we need, if you would, prophets in our day. You know, Men and women you know, will come along and speak the word of the Lord. And uh, you know, and you know, there comes a point in Matthew 18 there where you tell to the church, and so there comes a point where where others need to be made aware, because the person's relationship with Christ is broken down. The elders are not acting with impartiality, but showing favoritism, and they won't bring it to the church so others need to bring it to the church and then when necessary when all private attempts fail when all local church attempts fail and they're national celebrities national leaders then it's got to be brought to the body of christ
2: yeah you know and that's again that's the system that's laid in place by jesus christ himself like like that that's that's the process and i think oftentimes we we either jump straight to the end or we never get past step one. And it's like, no, we gotta gotta get through each of those steps because because again, the whole point is in hopes of bringing about repentance. I I think a lot of people see church discipline. They see that as a negative thing because it's just about punishing people. It's like, no, the whole point is to give people opportunities to repent. And And I think that for all of us that have been raising a lot of these concerns when it comes to Phil Johnson, when it comes to John MacArthur, when it comes to this cult, Celebrity worship mindset of, of the John MacArthur crowd, we've been giving them opportunities to repent, opportunities to come clean, and they haven't. And I think that, right. that that's where now we're approaching, now we're getting to that last step of Matthew 18.
3: It, you know, we're not jumping ahead. I think, I think if anything,
2: we've prolonged it quite right. a quite a long time to get to that point. So, um, so that that's kind of my takeaway on that one as well. But Brent, if people want to uh, read, read more of your writings, keep up on you, uh, that sort of thing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, they can go to my blog, com. Very simple. Or my Facebook page, I normally post uh, my articles, my blog articles on my Facebook page. So yeah, they can they can follow me there. They can read, you know, some of the past material I've written, you know, just there's a search engine, you know, on my blog, just search MacArthur and you'll see probably the eight to 10 articles I've written about him and Phil Johnson, you know, over the last five years. And, and I really have, I mean, I have reached out to these guys 101 different times. You know, just as I always do. Yeah, I, I'm just not. Uh, the work I do, I do with a redemptive motive. I mean, CJ was such a dear friend. I worked so hard and private for so long. And yet, finally, you know, I serve Christ. My ultimate allegiance is to him. So that's what what you have to do so people can read more there for sure mm-hmm.
2: okay definitely and i will put that i will put that information on in the show notes that way if you guys are watching wherever you guys are watching or listening on apple podcast just click on the link you guys can head over there and get more information but uh but brent i really appreciate you coming on we'll definitely have to be you on you again sometime so I, I really appreciate it
1: thank you my friend i appreciate it too
2: Thank you very much. And then everybody else as well. Again, make sure you guys like and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts. And then if you guys want some more resources, we've got some great resources, some great books over at gatekeepersonline.com slash store. We've got our book Church and State, got our book Social Injustice. We've got a brand new one by Pastor Sam Jones, Five Steps to the Kill a Nation and How to Stop the Bleeding. A bunch of great resources. Check that out. And then that's also one way you guys can support what we're doing here with the gatekeepers. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we shall catch you guys next time.